The title of my sermon is The Centurion's Confession and it's from Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. This morning as we think about the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, we shall consider the Roman army officer, a centurion, who supervised the crucifixion of Jesus. In particular, we shall consider a statement that he made when Jesus died. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, it is written, And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. That centurion would have been in charge of the soldiers who crucified not only Jesus, but also the two thieves who were nailed to crosses either side of the Saviour. We're told that the centurion stood over against Jesus. In other words, he stood facing him or opposite him. As such, he would have been an eyewitness of everything that took place and he would have been in earshot of all that Jesus said. Apart from the crucifixion of Jesus and the two thieves, the centurion had probably supervised the execution and death of many other people. However, what he saw and heard with regards Jesus must have been altogether different from anything that he'd seen or heard before at a crucifixion for him to say truly this man was the son of God first of all we can consider what the centurion saw Jesus giving up the ghost giving up the ghost speaks of death let's make no mistake about it Christ died on that wooden cross he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and he was put to death on that cross. As it is written in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. Most Muslims believe that death by crucifixion was not a worthy death for a good prophet like Jesus, that he was taken up into heaven without dying and that someone else died on the cross in his place. That just highlights the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. By saying that someone else died in Christ's place, they reduced the crucifixion of Jesus to a pretense. The clear teaching in the Bible is that in accordance with God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge, wicked hands crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and they slew him. In other words, they put him to death. In light of that clear teaching in both the Old and New Testament, anyone other than Jesus dying on the centre cross between two thieves amounts to a deception of the highest order by none other than Almighty God 
and clearly that is not the case. Giving up the ghost as it applies to the Lord Jesus Christ does not just mean dying. It signifies a death that was attended by peace and joy, with Jesus knowing that what would follow would be his triumphant return to God, having completed his work of redemption. When Jesus was crucified and put to death, he endured the cross for the joy of heaven that was set before him, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And something of that joyful expectation would no doubt have been observed by the centurion. In the same way, unbelieving hospital staff will often detect a peace and even a joy emanating from dying saints who have a hope that reaches up to heaven where their saviour Jesus Christ now is. I've seen that peace and joy in dying Christians on several occasions as they have been strengthened and comforted by God right up until they have given up the ghost. Abraham was someone who didn't just die when he gave up the ghost. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 58 describes Abraham's death in the following way. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. What do you suppose that means? Abraham gave up the ghost and was gathered to his people. The Bible commentator John Gill explains it this way. Gathered to his people, which is to be understood not of his burial, there being only the body of Sarah in the tomb in which he was laid, but of the admission of his soul into the heavenly state upon its separation from the body when it was at once associated with the spirits of just men made perfect. It seems clear to me that the man of God Abraham, who was a stranger and a pilgrim in this world, died with a joyful and certain expectation that his soul would be taken up to, to a heavenly city which have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I trust, dear Christian, that you too are looking onwards and upwards to where your heavenly mansion is, and most of all, to where Jesus is. Secondly, we can consider what the centurion heard. A dying Jesus declaring his trust in God. Let's have a look again at Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. And when the centurion which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Luke's gospel tells us what was said by the Lord Jesus Christ when he cried out. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, it is written, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands 
I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. When the centurion heard Jesus saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, that must surely have been a clear message to him and to others who were in, in earshot that even in death Jesus was trusting in God, whom he addressed as Father, to receive his spirit into heaven. Also, by addressing God as Father, those words of Jesus would have been consistent with his affirmation to the chief priests at his trial the night before that he is the Son of God. The centurion would no doubt have been informed that Jesus had already claimed to be the Son of God, and then he heard Jesus, in his dying breath no less, addressing God as Father. That must surely have given the centurion much food for thought. For me, what is so amazing about the Gospel of Christ is that Jesus really is the incarnate Son of God, who became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as the sacrificial Lamb of God, when he bare away my sins. Thirdly, we can consider the confession of others. Not only did the centurion confess Jesus to be the Son of God, but so too did they that were with him, according to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54. Surely they that were with him refers to the soldiers, his executioners, the very men who had nailed him to a wooden cross and lifted him up to die. Earlier on, those soldiers had mocked Jesus when they crowned him with thorns, when they bowed the knee before him, and when they said, Hail, King of the Jews, as they spat upon him. But this was very different. There was no more mocking. Those soldiers would no doubt have executed many others on previous occasions, and like the centurion, they would have observed that everything about this particular crucifixion was different. Apart from the observations that have already been considered, the centurion and his soldiers would have heard Jesus triumphantly declaring, It is finished, before he gave up the ghost. When Jesus said that, he was declaring that he had made an end, to, end of sin, that he had paid the price for freedom for, for, uh, from sin for all who have shown repentance towards God and trusted in him. Also, Jesus had said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said to the repentant thief, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Also, according to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54, the centurion and his soldiers feared greatly when they said, Truly this was the Son of God. 
The reason they feared greatly was because the earth shook, the rocks split apart, tombs opened, and the bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. Also, according to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45, darkness had fallen upon the land. That was in the middle of the day, when it should have been bright and sunny. Precisely how much the centurion and the soldiers heard, I don't know. And I'm not suggesting that they would have understood everything that they heard. But even so, when you bring together all of those cataclysmic supernatural events that happened and what Jesus said, they must have had much food for thought. Coming again to what the centurion and his soldiers declared after all that they had heard and seen, truly this man was the son of God. That statement is not in the same league as the confession of the Apostle Peter, who in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16 said to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What Peter said makes much more sense to me. A confession that Jesus is the Son of God, not was the Son of God, which suggests that Jesus somehow ceased to be the Son of God. Perhaps what those men said was influenced by a pagan understanding of God that embraced numerous gods, including their colonel-in-chief, the Roman Emperor. As the Bible commentator Albert Barnes said, they had heard, probably, that Jesus professed to be the Son of God. Seeing these wonders, they believed that God was now attesting the truth of his professions. The centurion was a pagan and had probably no very distinct notions of the phrase, the Son of God. Perhaps understanding by it only that he was like the pagan heroes who had been deified. But he certainly regarded these wonders as proof that he was what he professed to be. In the original, it is a son of God, an expression perfectly suitable to a polytheist who believed in the existence of many gods. Unlike Peter and the apostles, those men had not walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for the past three years. And they most certainly did not have the New Testament that has verses that speak of Jesus being the creator. For example, in John chapter 1 and verse 3, it is written about Jesus. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then there's the numerous verses that speak of Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. And those verses that speak of Jesus being sent into the world as the sacrifice for sin, such as John chapter 1 verse 29, where John the Baptist heralded the coming of Jesus 
with the words, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. There certainly is nothing in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39 for us to categorically say that the centurion made a profession of faith in Jesus, owning him to be the Son of God who paid the price for his sin on the cross. If we said that, then we'd have to say the same thing um, for the 12 or so soldiers who also said, surely this was the Son of God. What I am prepared to say with confidence is that those wicked men showed themselves to have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is than billions of people today who outrightly reject that Jesus ever was or is the Son of God. With our completed Bibles, we not only have a record of what those men heard and saw, we have much more besides, and there really is no excuse for any of you to not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and to not receive him as your Saviour from sin. Each one of you has on your lap or within easy reach a Bible which plainly declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You have a Bible that declares that Jesus, having paid the price for sin, is risen from the dead, that he is alive and that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. When that great event happens, is not given unto us. Even so, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is coming again. Therefore, repent, believe the gospel, and join with others who say, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs>